Amen. Kids, come on up. But before, we, before I start with the kids' sermon, and teens, you guys can leave too, but before you leave, I need to talk with everybody, okay? Um, I, in, in just being very transparent with you, I, I had a doctor one time tell me that I was too honest. And I said, well, I, don't, I would rather be too honest than be deceitful. Um, so I'm letting you know, as your pastor, I'm going through some health issues right now, okay? Um, I have been seen by a cardiologist for a long time since 2009 and I've gone through test after test after test after test and just recently I saw the cardiologist after wearing a a halter monitor and going through a whole bunch of stuff and I saw her this week and she said it's not your heart yeah it's not my heart what is it I don't know (laughs) so there are things going on and they're now referring me to a pulmonologist because it may be my lungs I'm also struggling with having problems with uh, water retention. And that's why I just left a few minutes ago, because they had me on a diuretic. And normally it hits at the right moment, but unfortunately sometimes it doesn't hit at the right moment. And I figured better before my sermon than in the middle of my sermon. So, um, <laughs> so I'm just letting you guys know what's going on. Just be praying prayer for me. I mean, I'm not dying. I'm not debilitated, but there is something going on. Like right now, just walking to the bathroom and coming back, and I'm struggling with my breath. I'm having a hard time regulating my breath. So I don't know what's going on. I hope it's not asthma, but if it is, it is. It is. I do have asthma in my family, so who knows? We'll see. But something's going on. So be in prayer that the doctors can figure it out, because it's not my heart. Everything says it's not my heart. Now, there's stuff wrong with my heart, but I'm 65 years old and I'm fat. So, I mean, there's stuff wrong with my heart, but it's not anything that's causing the things that are going on. Um, anyway, so, <sighs> I just wanted to let you guys know. Scenes and Renee, you guys can head on out. And kids, thank you guys for your patience. Um, I wanted to ask you something. Um, we've got Shane and we've got... Why do I want to say Dylan? It's Adrian. <laughs> I don't know where the Dylan came from. Adrian and Audrey and is Lillian not here today? She's hiding. Okay. And then there's Matthew and is Cassie's over here. Hi, Cassie. Um, I want to ask you guys. All of you guys, all of you guys were born and live in the house that you were born into, right? No? Well, not the physical house. But I mean, but, but you weren't, none of you guys were adopted, right? I don't think. Were any of you guys adopted? Do you guys know what adopted means? Have you ever heard of adopted before? Yeah, exactly. It's when your mom or your dad can't take care of you, either because they're sick or they died or something has gone on. And so because of that, then some other people say they want to take you into their family. Well, I want to talk to you about what that means about being in God's family. Because God said he adopts us. Now, I'm going to tell you this before I tell you that there are three scriptures I want you to hear this morning. But before I tell you that, I want to tell a story. I have a person in my life, someone that I know personally, who has a child. I won't tell you their name because that wouldn't be appropriate. They're not here to defend themselves. But that child was born into a house with a mom and a dad. And then, for some reason, mom and dad couldn't stay married. And so mom and dad divorced. And mom lives on one part of the country, and dad lives on another side of the country. Literally, two different sides, over 3,000 miles away. And the child lives with one of the parents. And then, both parents got remarried. So now, there's a mom and a dad, and a mom and a dad, and the child only stays with the one mom and dad. And they decided, because the mom and the dad over here that the child is with, they have other children that live with them, all who have the same last name. So they decided that this child didn't have the same last name. So they asked the other parent, is it okay if we change this child's last name so their last name is the same as everybody else? 
So in other words, if this child's name is Smith, but all the other family members, their last name is Jones, that person is now going to be called Joe Jones instead of Joe Smith. Like, does that make sense? That way they all have the same last name. But they started thinking about it, and they said, you know what? What happens if there's an accident? What happens if the mom who has the child here dies because of an accident? Legally, the dad who lives 3,000 miles away is the one who would have to take the child into his home. Even though this is where the child is. And this is where the kid knows his neighbors and his friends and his school and his brothers and sisters. But legally, he would have to go live, live with his dad, his biological dad. And so they, do, they all talked about it and they decided, you know what? For the best for the child, they wanted this parent, the father, to say it was okay for the new dad to adopt the child. And that way, legally... They could stay together as a family. There wouldn't be any issues at all, any problems. And literally what they did was instead of just having the name of the family, they actually had everything about being part of a real family. Everything. No one could ever tell them, you're not really part of our family. You might have the same last name, but you're not really part of our family. Because legally, they are really now part of the family. And that was a hard thing for everybody to go through. It was very hard. And some, they were worried about people not understanding, or worried about people getting their feelings hurt. But what was best for the child was to make sure that the child had the, the protection, the legal protection of being part of this family. And I want to try and help you understand what that means for us as Christians, because God said the same thing to us. Did you know God said he adopts each one of you as his child? Did you know that? Let me read to you what it says in the Bible. Up on the screen, there is a verse. It's Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. And it says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's God saying that to his children. I have called you by name. I know your name. And you are mine. Miss Evelyn, can you bring up the next screen? The next one is first found in 1 John chapter 3. And this is what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God and so we are. God said, I call you by name, you are mine, and I love you so much. I want everyone to know you are my child. And because God said it, we are God's child. And then the last verse I want you to hear. Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 7. You are no longer a slave, a servant, but you are a son or a daughter. And if you are a son or a daughter, then you are an heir through God. Do you know what the word heir means? Huh? An heir sign? Okay, well that's not what this word heir means. The word heir here means when, if there's anything that the parent owns, the child is allowed to use it. So that means if God has something, God has said, you can use the things I have. Isn't that powerful? God owns everything. And God said, you're my child and I will give you power and I will give you authority, and I will give you everything, and you can use it because you are not a servant. You're my child, and I love you. So, those three verses. God knows who you are, and God calls you by name. And he says, you are mine. So he said, Adrian, you are mine. God says that. Audrey, God says, you are mine. Lillian, God says, you are mine. Shane, God says, you are mine. Matthew, God says, you are mine. Cassie, who's hiding over there, God says, you are mine. 
And in addition to that, God says, I love you. And you are not just mine, but you are my child. And because you are my child, I give you everything that you need, and I give you everything, I give you access to everything. My authority, my name, my power, everything. And that's what adoption does. Remember I said this child that was adopted over here? He's not really part of the family? That's just what it's like for us when God says we are adopted into God's family. We are really part of God's family. It's not just a name only. It's real. We have authority. Now, you guys don't fully understand that I know. But someday you will. And I want you to learn to walk in that authority, that you are a child of God because God said so. Not because Pastor Bob said so, but because God said so. Let's pray. Father, help these kids. Help them to come to understand what it means to be adopted into the family of God. To be a child of the King. To have the authority. To have access to everything that you give, you give all of us access to. None of us are stepchildren. None of us are servants. We are all adopted fully into the family of God. And I give you praise for that, Lord. Bless these kids now as they go to their class. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You guys can go to your class now. What I just said to the kids does tie in with what I'm about to tell you, but it's not going to seem like it for a while. We are currently following what is called the narrative lectionary. The narrative lectionary takes us through passages of scripture um, throughout the school year. So from September until May, we follow weekly what other churches around the world are following. So this week, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. But before we get there, I have to ask a question. And I want you to be honest and raise your hands if if this really pertains to you. In your walk with Christ... In your personal experience, have you ever had personal interaction with something or someone who was demonic? Well, the best of your ability to to determine. I can tell you, um, when when I was living in Texas before I went to Bible college I was a counselor at uh, teen camp in, in South Texas and we were out in the middle of nowhere I mean this camp was out in the middle of nowhere there wasn't a town anywhere in sight and it had taken us eight hours to drive there now others didn't take them that long we were on the out, outer reaches of the district but it was out in the middle of nowhere rattlesnake country I mean just This is Texas. And um, we had a young man there. He was 17. He was maybe 5'8", 5'9". If he weighed 150, that was a lot. He was wiry, but he was very slight in frame and, and, and height. This young man was so full of anger and so full of rage and so full of darkness. And we were praying for him all week long. And it came to Thursday night of this five-day camp, and he had gotten upset. And this young man, it was probably, when I say night, it was probably 4.35 in the evening. And he had gotten upset, and he was leaving. It had taken us hours to drive to this camp, but he was leaving. He had packed his suitcase, and he was walking out. And he literally had his suitcase up on his shoulder like this. This 5'9", 150-pound kid with a suitcase on his shoulder, walking out. Well, we had security people whose job for the camp was to be security, to make sure that everyone was safe. These guys were big, big guys. I mean, they were 6'3", 6'4", probably 300 pounds, 280 pounds, burly, muscular men. This kid was holding the suitcase on his shoulder and with one hand pushing these burly men out of his way. And it wasn't that they were just letting him push them out of the way. They were trying to block him from leaving. And he literally was just pushing them out of the way. Finally, 
they've convinced him to get into the golf cart and to take him to the pastoral counselor that was on staff for that camp so he could talk with him. And so he got into the golf cart and then the two security guys were in the golf cart with him to take him to the pastoral counselor. And then there was another golf cart that I was in and one of the other adults. And so I went and picked up this kid's suitcase to put in the back of my golf cart. And it was like, oh my word. It was like 70 pounds. Here this 150 pound kid was carrying half of his body weight on his shoulder with one hand and was pushing 280 to 300 pound men out of his way. That was superhuman strength. We then went to the motel area on the campground where they had the pastoral campus, pastoral counselor, where they had taken this kid, and the two of us sat outside with the two, with, with two other adults, and we were praying intercession over what was going on in that room with the counselor and the two adult security people. And we, we prayed a good 15 to 20 minutes, and it was like, it was like just a heaviness, just this Dark. It was hard to pray. I mean, it was like slogging through mud and muck trying to walk. That's how hard it was to pray. But after about 15 to 20 minutes, it broke open. And we literally, the four of us that were outside, began worshiping and praising the Lord. And one of the guys that was in the hotel room came out and he said, He just gave his heart to Christ. Keep praying and closed the door again and went back inside. And we were just worshiping and praising the Lord. And then ultimately, this kid was in wonderful shape after he had given his heart to Christ. He was God had done some miraculous work with his his pain and his shame and his heartache and his and his burden. And, And then that evening in the worship service, this kid stood up and testified with glorious countenance about the the way that God had saved his soul. And then I saw the next day, for the remainder of the day that we were there at the camp, the evidence that something had indeed changed in his heart. So I saw a very slight 150-pound kid who could physically carry a 70-pound suitcase and push 280 to 300-pound men out of his way, who changed in an instant. And I believe with all of my heart that there was demonic activity. Because I had a hard time praying. The four of us had a hard time praying for almost 30 minutes. But then something in the heavenlies broke. And we were able to bring worship to the Lord and glory to God. We had spent 20 minutes in hard work praying for that kid. And it, it was a struggle. And I will tell you what I believe was happening was that there was a fight going on in the heavenlies that we couldn't see. Now, there will be some ministries who will tell you that I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to show you through the scriptures this morning how very real this is and how very concerning this is for Christians. So first of all, um, Evelyn, bring up that very first slide of Mark chapter... No, Jesus' first miracle. Thank you. There you go. Jesus' very first miracle. If you go to the book of Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, it's also recorded in Luke chapter 4. If you go to this, you'll see... And I'm going to read it to us right now. The very first miracle Jesus did. It says, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing the man and crying out with a loud voice came out of the man. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. And at once, Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. 
The very first sermon, that, I mean the very first miracle recorded in the Gospels is the healing of a demoniac. The release of someone from demon possession. Now, we live in an age where many doctors and many psychologists and many psychiatrists will tell you that mental illness is very real. And I'm not denying that. But there are some times when mental illness is actually demonic activity being masked as mental illness. And it takes a spiritually discerning person to be able to understand the difference. Because I could have told you that this young man at the camp was simply a raging, angry, hormonal teenager who was upset with everything in his life and he had just broken up with his girlfriend and that's why he was filled with adrenaline and pushing through. Maybe. But those of us who were there as Christians, who struggled for 20 to 30 minutes in prayer, knowing that he wasn't anywhere near us, we were outside. And we were struggling. We knew this was more than a raging hormonal teenager who'd gotten his feelings hurt. Something was not right. And that's exactly what happened here in this very first episode in Jesus' ministry. But we're not looking at Mark chapter 1. We're looking at Mark chapter 5. So let's go ahead and turn to that one. This is Jesus healing a man who was possessed by a demon. Mark chapter 1, verse, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. The disciples and Jesus came to the other side of the sea. What sea? The Sea of Galilee. They were in Capernaum. And if I had a map, I'd show it to you. But Capernaum, Capernaum is up on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Then Jesus says to them in the last part of Mark, chapter 4, let's go to the other side of the lake. Well, he says right here, first part of chapter 5. Other part of the sea. What they did was they got in a boat and they went to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. Scholars are not able to tell us exactly where Jesus and his disciples went because in the three different uh, stories in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's various terms used. Gadarenes, Gesserenes, Gesserah. So they're not exactly sure because the area was known as Gadara, but there was a, and there was an area called Gadara, but there was also a place called Gisara. And so they're not quite sure exactly where. They do know it was the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And so, um, and I, I read one scholar who said that you could stand on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and look across to the west. I mean, excuse me, I've got it reversed. This is the eastern side of Galilee and the western side was the other side that they were looking at. But they were staying on the western side, looking at the eastern side, and they said that you could actually see across the lake and you could see a hilly area over in that area of Gadara. And so that might have very well been where this story took place. We don't know. All we know is that it happened in what's called the Decapolis, the area of the ten cities, the area that is not Jewish, the area that is Gentile. <coughs> now, it says verse 2, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately... He was met by a man who came out of the tombs who had an unclean spirit. This man lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he would wrench the chains apart. And he would break the shackles into pieces. Does that sound anything like a 17-year-old who's carrying a 70-pound suitcase pushing 300 pounds of men out of his way? It does to me. It says in verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and cried out with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was for Jesus was saying to the man, actually to the demon, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked the spirit, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And the man, 
Now, this is interesting. In Mark, it says the man begged earnestly not to send them out of the country. In Luke, it says, and they begged Jesus not to send them out of the country. Who knows? Who cares? The bottom line is the demons were manipulating the man. And they were asking Jesus not to send them out of the country. If you read, I think it's in Mark's chat, Mark's, uh, it might be Mark's, or it might be Matthew. It says, don't send us into the abyss. Well, if you read that term abyss, that refers to what we see later on in Revelation is God has a pit, a bottomless pit that has been prepared for the devil and the angels that are the fallen angels. And so here they're begging not to be sent to that abyss, but to be allowed to continue to be on the earth. And for whatever reason, we don't know why Jesus doesn't explain it ever. Jesus allows that to happen. He does not cast them into the abyss. He says, just leave this man. And they said, well, where can we go? And they said, there's some pigs over there. Can we go over there? And he said, fine, just go. And it said, what does it say? A great herd of pigs was there on the, on the, the hillside. Um, and where does it say? Where, read it. We're, read it. I'm hearing the word 2,000, but I'm not seeing it. Thank you. There it is. Numbering 2,000. 2,000 pigs ran down the bank. Think about this. Did 2,000 demons leave the man and each one go into a pig? Can you imagine if indeed that was the case? The torment that that man lived with. Then it says that pigs went down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned. The herdsmen then fled into the city and told the and, and fled in the fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon possessed man. The one who had been, had the legion is just sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might come with him. And he, Jesus did not permit him, but instead said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And then Jesus went away. Excuse me. And then the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I cannot even begin to describe to you the horror. Again, so often people are said, oh, it's just a mental illness. I have experienced it in my own life. I don't mean myself. I'm talking about people. I was in Monterey, California. And there was a young woman that I was ministering to. I wasn't a, a pastor then, but I felt called to be a pastor. I knew I was called. And this young woman had just come to faith. At least I thought so. And I was visiting with her a day, or few, a day or two later, and we were talking, and she said something about God within. And I said, well, that's true. We believe that when we accept Christ as our Savior, that the Holy Spirit of God enters into us and we become a child of God. And she said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. She said... The God that is within me is God. And I said, there is no God but Jehovah. His name is I am. And she said to me, I am. I am. And at that point I went, oh God, I don't know what to do with this. And I was only 18 years old. I had only been a Christian two years. I had no formal training at all in spiritual warfare. And I was like, oh, and I just backed off. I had no idea. what. I don't know whatever happened to this woman. I never saw her again. But what I do know was in that home where she was renting a room, there was a chapel that they had set up 
with really ugly icons and crosses that they had upside down and stuff. And this woman was being oppressed, if not possessed, by the demonic. I can tell you time and time and time and time and time again over the 40 plus years that I've walked with Christ that that has happened in my life. I have, God for well, I, one of my spiritual gifts is I am able to discern spirits. I am able to tell when evil is present. That's one of my gifts. And you can recognize, you maybe can't, but I can recognize when there's a person in my presence who has allowed the enemy access to their life. And it, is, it breaks your heart because I can't make that stop. One of the things that's interesting about this story is what we see... Well, bring up the next slide, Evelyn, please. What we see in four different passages, the demons recognized who Jesus was. In that Mark chapter 1 passage, the demon, the very first, very first healing from demonic activity, he literally says, you are the Holy One of God. In Mark chapter 5, same thing. There he says, what did he say? He said, the mo- you are the Son of the Most High God and I adjure you by your Father, not to cast me out. In Mark chapter 1 verse 34, Jesus, it says, healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and Jesus would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. For whatever reason, at that time, Jesus did not want his identity let out into public. And the thing that really kills me, not just in the gospel story, but even in the, the epistles, in the epistle of James, chapter 2, verse 19, it says, you believe that God is one? Well, you do really well, because even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The teaching that we have from the Bible is that the enemy has minions, has fallen angels. And these fallen angels follow their leader. And they know who Jesus is. And they called him out as the Son of God, as the most holy one of the Lord. So even if Jesus didn't identify himself at the beginning, the enemy was. Now, they recognize Jesus, and the other thing you need to recognize or know in this, in this study, go ahead and bring up the next slide. Demonic power and authority is very real. I am not saying that every single person you meet that struggles is under some demonic oppression. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that it is not something to be ignored. Demonic power and authority is very real. If you look at Ephesians chapter two, excuse me, chapter six, verse 12, it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What in the world? Darkness? And evil in heaven? What is he saying there? Well, let me give you something out of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, to give us a little bit of understanding of what Paul was talking about when he talked about the forces of evil in heavenly places. In Daniel chapter 10, if you open it you don't have to open it up, but if you open it up, you will see that um, Daniel, the prophet, was fasting and praying for a total of three weeks. Intensely, intensely praying because God had shown him something and he was asking God for, for guidance. He was asking God to bless the people. He was asking God to be with them. 
And um, in verse 13, it says the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Now, this me is not Daniel. This me is the heavenly messenger that had been sent to Daniel when he started praying and fasting. And this heavenly messenger, this angel, if you will, said, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, the chief of the princes, Michael the archangel, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. And then what's crazy is it said when he leaves, if you, go, if you read through chapter 10, it's really an interesting story. When he leaves after giving the message to Daniel, it says he goes back to the fight so that Michael could go back up to his place in heaven. So right here in the book of Daniel, we are given evidence of what Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians, that there is some kind of a struggle going on in the heavenlies Beyond our reach of physical reach, but it's not in heaven, quote unquote, where God is. So the best thing we can understand, for lack of a better way of saying it, is there is a spiritual atmosphere around the planet Earth. And that is a battleground between the angels who are who are aligned with God and the angels who are aligned with the chief of darkness, the enemy of our souls. If you go to the third verse that I have highlighted here, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I cannot explain that. I have to simply take it at face value. What that says to me is that God the Almighty, for whatever purpose, has said to the enemy of our soul and all of his followers, you have authority over the earth. Does that mean supreme authority? No, no, no. God doesn't yield and and, and relinquish his his supreme authority. But God has given the enemy of our souls the opportunity to have authority. Now, why? If you think about our theology, God created humanity because God wanted relationship with us. And God willingly God fashioned us in the image of God but gave us the ability to choose. We are not servants or slaves or robots that have no choice in the matter. We have the the right to say I choose to be a follower of God or the right to say I choose my own path. And the only way you can Make that choice is if a temptation is cast before you. It goes all the way back to the time in the garden. All the way back. The enemy presents you with an opportunity and you have to make a choice. Am I going to continue to walk with God or am I going to go my own way? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that with every temptation there is always a way out. You can always... Find a way out. There is no temptation that you will not be able to escape from. But it is still your choice. So the end result is, do you align yourself with God? Or do you align yourself with the enemy? There is no in-between. You can't be neutral. Either you say, yes, I want the path of God. I want to live a righteous and holy life. Or you say, I choose the enemy. But see, the problem is, the enemy doesn't present himself as the enemy of God. The enemy presents himself, 
the book of God says, as an angel of light, masquerading. Everything that God doesn't want for you, that the enemy does want for you, is presented to you in a way that seems enticing, pleasant. But if you go to the book of James, it says that these enticements, these pathways that you choose to become selfish, to become against God, they lead to death. Now, he's not talking necessarily physical death. He's talking spiritual death. Now, it could lead to physical death. But ultimately, the whole point is spiritual death. Because you see, the enemy of our souls, we are told, not necessarily from Scripture, but from extra biblical things. There are some things in Scripture that point to this. But there are extra biblical things that tell us about a war that happened in heaven. There was an angel of light known as Lucifer. Lucifer was one of the ones that covered the throne of God. He was beautiful. He was glorious. He, 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 if you will, he mirrored for all of heaven the glory of God. So the glory of God shone onto Lucifer and it shone out to all of... So Lucifer had one of the choicest positions in all of heaven... The closest position to the throne of God. To always be in the very glory of God. And irradiating it out to the rest. But Lucifer was not satisfied with that. And Lucifer wanted to be God himself. And we are told that he convinced one third of the angels of heaven to follow him in a rebellion. And that there was a fight And that fight ended between the two-thirds of the angels and the one-third of the angels. And the end result was when Lucifer and his angels lost, they were cast out of heaven. And they were sent to the earth where they have authority. And what what is their motive? What is the thing that they want the most? They want... To hate God. And I think I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me go back to my, to my notes. Let's go to the next slide. The demonic powers is, is and authority is real. But there, are, but there is authority that the children of God have. And it is great. Luke chapter 10. Verse 17 through 20 says. That Jesus sent out his disciples. In, in, in 72 of them out. In pairs. Telling them to go and do healing and ministry. And now they're returning in Luke chapter 10. And it says, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless. Do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Yes, you have authority. Yes, you have power. But that's not what's important. Because guess what? That was the temptation that Lucifer succumbed to power and authority and as a result he lost everything Jesus said yes you have that power yes you have that authority I gave it to you but it is not what you need to focus on what you need to focus on what you need to continually hold before you is you are a child of God And that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. That's what you need to focus on. If you go to Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, we are told that God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of the Apostle Paul. So much so. That if he held on to a handkerchief or wore an apron and then that was taken... To someone who was sick. Their diseases would leave them. Evil spirits would be cast out of them. 
by simply having a handkerchief that Paul had held in his hands and prayed over and then laid on the demoniac and the demons would be cast out through a piece of cloth because of the power of God. The authority that God has given to the people of God. But look at the next verses in Acts chapter 19. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. I heard about Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on the seven men, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so much so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. See, bring up the next slide. You need to respect the power that the enemy has, but not fear it. There's a battle going on. There's a battle going on. You need to recognize, and this is where I was getting into this hatred that Jesus, that the enemy has for God. If you look at John eight forty four, it says you, talk, Jesus is talking to the, the 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 Jewish leaders in some town. He says you are the of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he's speaking from his own nature. For he is a liar. He is the father of lies. That's how Jesus described the enemy of our souls. The very nature is nothing but falsehood and lies. Everything that comes out of his mouth is falsehood and lies. But then John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, Greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world. This spiritual darkness that envelops the world, we're told that the Holy Spirit of God that's within us is greater than the one that is in the world. If you look in James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Christians, you need to submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Now, I want to, (laughs) I'm going to be careful to not say the word because this is being recorded and I don't want to offend anybody. Um, Before I went to Bible college, Renee and I used to live in Texas. And on that district, the the Nazarene district in Texas, they had an annual layman's retreat that was held at the H.E. Butt Campground in whatever, Laredo, Texas, where it was on a river. Beautiful, beautiful campground. And we were there. And one day, uh, one of the the guest speaker and his wife, because they were both speaking, the guest speaker and his wife split the group up. And he took all the men and she took all the women. And they talked Individually, not individually, but talk to the two groups. So the man talking with the men, the woman talking with the women. And the man was talking to us and he said, you need to be the spiritual leader of your home. You need to be the guardian of your home. You need to be the one to make sure that the enemy doesn't have access to the people of your life. You need to be the one to do spiritual battle for your family. And let me tell you something. Something that my son did. I was so proud of him. He didn't do it great, but he did it. And I'm so proud of him because he had just come to Christ. He'd been a sinner for most of his life. But in his early 30s, he came to Christ. And he had a wife and two kids. And he asked me, he said, Dad, help me. I want to get Jesus in my house. I want enemy out of my house. Please tell me what to do. And he said, well, God, he said, son, you just need to just pray. Just read the scriptures and pray in your home. And so he said, would you come and help me, Dad? He said, I'll be glad to help you. So he went, the wife and the kids left the house. And the man stood there and his son was standing there. And the son opened up his Bible and he read some scriptures. And then he started to pray. And after he prayed, he said, God, I want you to be in charge. I want you to love. I want to love you. I want to serve you. I want this house to be yours. And then he looked up to the ceiling and he said, and devil, get the out of my house. 
And we all started laughing because get that blank out of my house. And the, the, the minister who was telling us this story, he said, I struggled not to laugh, too, because in his innocence and in his exuberance, he didn't do what we Christians would have done. But he did what he should have done. He told the enemy he no longer had a place in his home. He told the enemy he no longer had access to his kids. He told the enemy that he was closing the door and he was not coming back in. And there is that power that we have as children of God. There is that authority. We are adopted into the family of God. We, have, we are heirs with Christ. So we have that authority. However, if you read in the book of Jude, verse 9, you see this verse. It says, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. Now, before we go any further with that, let me explain what this is about. This is not from the Bible. This verse is. But this story that he's referring to, it's actually from an extra biblical book called The Assumption of Moses. It's a part of the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, but it's, it's not part of the Bible. And this is talking about when Moses was brought up to the mountain just before his death and God allowed Moses to see the promised land. And then he said, now Joshua is going to take the children into the promised land and you're going to die here and be buried on this mountain. So that's exactly what happens. And that's how the book of Deuteronomy ends. That Moses dies, Joshua takes lead, and they now move on into the, book, into the book of Joshua, and they go and take over the land. But what happened to Moses? What happened to his physical body? Well, in the book of, uh, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, it says the Lord buried him. But in Jude... Jude quotes from this book called The Assumption of Moses, and he says, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil about the body of Moses, didn't dare to pronounce against him railing a judgment, but said instead, the Lord rebuke you. So what was happening, according to the assumption of Moses, was that the enemy and, and the archangel Michael were fighting over the body of Moses, and Moses was to be buried. But the enemy wanted to have access to the body to do whatever vicious, nasty thing with it. And Michael was rebuking the enemy. And Michael was taking authority over the enemy. But not once did Michael go, I'm stronger than you are. I will fight you to the death. I'm stronger than you are. He never once said that. What he said was, the Lord rebuke you. Because what did it say in James? If you submit to God and resist the devil, he must flee. That's what Michael was practicing. What James taught. If you submit to God and resist the devil, the devil must flee from you. Bring up the last slide, Evan, please. Taking us right back to the beginning. Oh, I'm sorry. Bring that one up. I didn't have that one in my notes, I guess. Yes, I did. Bring that one up. The enemy of our soul hates God. He is so jealous of God's authority and glory that it, as it manifests, it manifests as hate. His modus operandi the, Lord, the word of God tells us, Jesus in the Gospel of John says, his modus operandi is to steal and to kill and to destroy. One of the chief ways that the enemy tries to hurt God is by attacking the humans that God loves. The challenge is, as I said, that because of free will, we humans submit to the enemy and allow the enemy access to our lives. And God does not intervene until we ask God to. And that's hard. Because the argument can be made. Well, why would a loving God, blah, 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 blah. 
But the reality is the loving God has said to you, I love you enough to let you choose. But when the person chooses wrongly and aligns themselves with the enemy, they are literally opening the door and allowing the enemy access to their life. There is an old, 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 ancient Jewish proverb, and I can't quote it, but I can tell you the gist of it. If you know someone's name and you invoke their name, you now have power over them. It's not biblical, but it's an ancient proverb. Now imagine, if the enemy comes up to you and says, Hi, what's your name? My name's Bob. I've just given them access. Hi, Bob. Wow, I really noticed that you and I have a lot of things in common. I'd like to spend some more time with you to get to know you better. Would it be okay if we got together for lunch someday? Sure, that sounds great. And the more I align myself with the, with the enemy, I allow the access to me. And the time will come when the enemy will take over. I know that's hard to think about. But the more you give the enemy access, the more they're going to look for opportunity to get in and get in and get in and get in until ultimately they now control. And now I ask you again, do you know someone in your life who struggles with demonic activity? Have they opened themselves to the enemy? Have they given them the power of their name? We have been, we who have been redeemed have great power over the enemy. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. As a child of God, you have been given specific authority and privilege and power. But it is not yours because of anything that's about you. It's simply the relationship you have. It's just like I told the kids at the very beginning. Adopted into the family, now you have the full rights of the name. But you can't take that for granted. Because it's not you. You don't have the power. You're simply, if you will, a channel. Or you're an ambassador representing. If you want to name it that way. So, bring me up that last slide. This is what I want you to take home with you. Fear not. You are mine. As long as you align yourself with God, you do not have to fear the enemy of your soul. You do have to guard against the enemy of your soul. You do have to do all that you can to keep the enemy of your soul from gaining access to your life. Because God has put that in your hand. Parents have a great responsibility to guard the hearts and minds of their children. As adults, we have the responsibility ourselves. And I can't tell you, and I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. You choose for yourself what lines you will allow to be crossed. But the bottom line is, if you are allowing the enemy to have access in any way, shape, or form then you are not giving that access to God. Because God's not going to cohabit with the enemy. If you want to live a life of power and authority, you need to submit to the Lord. Just like it says in James. 
and resist the devil. And he'll flee. Not because of you, but because of Jesus in you. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your word would settle in deep and root and grow and produce a hundredfold. Father, if there's anyone in the sound, within the sound of my voice, whether they're physically in this room or whether they're out on the internet listening, I pray, Father, that if they are not in right relationship with you right now, that they would recognize and acknowledge that they have allowed the enemy of their soul access to their lives and that they have actually violated the relationship that you're offering them and that they would confess and repent and that they would turn from their wicked ways and turn back to you, O God. Because you said, if we confess and repent, you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You will give us of the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth and lead us and empower us and help us to honor you. So, Father God, I pray for those who do not know you right now, that they will soon know you, that they will repent and confess. And Father, finally, I pray your protection over the children and young people of our church. Help them, Lord. Guard their steps. Guard their hearts. Guard their minds. Help us as parents, as grandparents, as aunties, as uncles, as church family to help these young ones walk in a path of holiness and purity and righteousness. I praise you, Father, and I thank you, and I give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.